This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls and inside the earnings calls. You can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have 1x, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite, and you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about Quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. This week, we have Sinstock Poppy joining the Hive. He is, uh, I don't know how you you describe him, just a, a great follow on Twitter. He loves tobacco stocks. He loves anything non-ESG, really. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to dive into all that stuff. So obviously, he's going to remain anonymous. So I'm going to refer to him as either Sinstock Poppy or if I hopefully not as often, Poppy. But Josh, <laughs> if, that, if, that, if that happens, please just end this podcast now. So Sinstock Poppy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, when did you get started investing? When did, when did, when did that interest peak? Yeah. So first off, thanks for having me on and shout out to Greenwald. Jason Greenwald made this happen. So I have to say thank you to him. Um, so it was an accident actually. So I went to a school where extracurriculars were kind of mandatory and I missed our grade nine club fair uh, because I had hockey practice and because I missed it, they kind of just allocate you into the club that no one else wants to be in. So they dumped me in the business club um, and there was a stock market simulator. Uh, and me and my buddy Colin, who had also missed the club fair, uh, were there together. Uh, and we actually won in grade nine by putting 50% of our portfolio into Apple and the other 50% into Lululemon. And our thesis was very simple for both these stocks. The phones were cool and we were big fans of the pants because the pants made the girls' asses look great. And we were in grade nine. We fucking loved it. I had early lucky success and I stuck with it. Um, And then I kind of went to university, one of the bigger business programs in Canada at Queens. And then I did two buy-side internships while I was there during my summers. Um, So that kind of had a kind of, it kind of piqued my interest more because I saw that I liked what I was doing. Um, And then I read a lot of books on investing. So I think Capital Returns by Marathon Asset Management, Private Equity Lessons Any Business Could Use, I think it was by the HBR, The Outsiders by Thorndike, Zero to One by Teal. Poor Charlie's Almanac, all that sort of stuff just had a big influence on me. And, you know, I just really enjoy investing because I find it very intellectually stimulating. But then also I like to gamble. You know what I mean? I like to win. 
Um, and that's what investing is. So we really, we should thank hockey practice for your start in investing. We should, we should actually thank hockey for a lot of things uh, in my life. So what position, <laughs> what, what position did you play? Uh, I played wing. Uh, I was half halfway decent growing up. And then once you finish playing uh, up until like you're 18, you have uh, like the choice of quitting and then going to school or you can play what's called junior. And then there are two tiers to junior in Canada. There's like the, there's major junior, which is how people go and play in the NHL or there's what's called tier two junior, which is how people get NCAA scholarships. So I went there to tier two junior um, and I was trying to, or I thought I could get or play NCAA, but I was absolutely horseshit. So I ended up being a grocery stick. So a grocery stick, for those of you who don't watch hockey or know hockey, is someone who sits on the bench between the forwards and the D. So that was a really unenjoyable experience and I haven't played hockey since. <laughs> so why do they call it the grocery <laughs> stick? Because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big hockey fan, but I've never heard of that. Obviously, I'm not from Canada, so I'm, I, I'm not in the know there. But what's a, what's a grocery stick? Like, where did that so come someone, from? So someone, so like, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you put the grocery stick to separate your food from like the other person's yes. food? Yes. Okay, got it. So like, got I, yeah, so I would sit in the middle of the bench separating the forwards from the tea. <laughs> That's amazing. Everybody serves a purpose, yeah. man. <laughs> Everybody serves a purpose. I was a good team guy, though. That's what everyone loved about me. So like they never traded me and, and like the team was a championship team. So uh, in the league that I played in the OJHL, we had a cup called the Buckland cup. So we won that. And then when you win that uh, you go to uh, what's called the RBC cup, which is like, it's all of Canada, all the best teams from all of Canada. So, so, so they call it, it's, it's the RBC, but they call it the bank. So we went to the bank. So that was awesome. fun. That's awesome. So when did your, or I guess, how did your investment philosophy evolve to what it is today, right? Because it's, it's, it's a stark contrast between 50% Apple, 50% Lululemon and your portfolio now, which is everything, basically tobacco stocks and then a few other things. So how, where, at what point did that philosophy shift? Yeah. So I don't like, I wouldn't say I'm all like about tobacco and all I'll ever invest in is tobacco, like moving forward, but just kind of starting at the beginning, there wasn't really any method to the madness. I was just investing in stuff that I thought was cool. So that was Apple and Lululemon. And then when I got to school and I worked at my first investment gig, I thought, okay, what you learn in school is that there's only inefficiency in small and micro caps. And then this, this fund was more so focused on micro caps and so you only got to find micro caps so there's hidden value. So it's really like that early Buffett style. And then as I spent more time reading and learning, I learned what was more important was the ability to continue to redeploy cash at high rates of return. And then my second gig kind of reinforced that because they were more of a research-driven GARPY fund. Hmm. Um, and then they also taught me the importance of developing a quantitative coupled with a qualitative approach. So that way you can kind of determine what to work on, right? Because when you're just looking at ideas or you have ideas, you don't know which one to prioritize, which one to go deep on. Um, so they kind of gave me that uh, sort of background. And then I'd say my main influences as an investor today are John Malone, Jeff Bezos, Munger, Taleb, Peter Thiel. Uh, Josh Tarasoff is one that people really don't know, but he's incredible. Um, and then John Hubert. So if I could describe my philosophy today, I'd say it's pretty simple. It's just a combination of value, quality, 
and growth in a category of business that I can understand at a similar level to the customer. So tobacco is really easy for me because I've been a customer since I was 16 years old. Got it. So there's a lot to pull from that. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to kind of bifurcate that. Um, First question that I have, you mentioned knowing which stocks to prioritize and kind of creating a qualitative system to track that. Mm -hmm. What did you learn while you were at that firm that others could use? Because I find, I find this issue myself as well in that what I prioritize is a function of what excites me the most. So it's really not, Mm -hmm. it's really not quantitative as much as it is like, this thing gets me very excited and I'm going to spend most of my time there because I'm super stoked about what the company does. And I think the technology is really cool. How do you attack that problem? Yeah. So at this firm, what they used was a combination of value and quality and how they defined value was maybe they were looking at EV EBITDA or price to earnings, and then they would rank their companies on their full screen and in their portfolio based on those. And then quality would be return on equity. And then they would rank the quality set and then they would combine rank, right? So let's say you have like, so they would combine rank those two less to come up with a combined value quality. So how I iterated on that is for my value section, I use EV EBITDA, um, I use price to free cash flow, Uh, enterprise value to free cash flow. Uh, And then I do a rank there. And then for quality, I use, uh, so so Malbusan said that, uh, hopefully I said his name right, but gross profit over assets is something that is is a better predictor of quality. So, So I use that, but I use tangible assets. And then I use cash returns on tangible equity as my other one. So like free cash flow over tangible equity, and then I have a rank there. And then for growth, I use gross profitability per share growth and then cash flow per share growth. And that rank actually works pretty well because at the top of the list today is tobacco. Mm-hmm. And that's not my, my bias. It's just that was what was at the top of the list. So that's what I work on. Got it. No, that makes sense. And then the second part you said, I wish I could, I wish I wrote it down, but almost you're, you're trying to invest in businesses where you can understand it from the consumer's perspective or from the customer's perspective. And tobacco is Mm -hmm. one that you've been using since 16. What's the importance there of understanding a product or service from the customer standpoint? Because it sounds a lot like when I had Connor Haley on from AltaFox way back Mm -hmm. when, and he stressed the importance of unit economics, where in this case, it's almost like you're breaking down the business, not from a unit economic standpoint, but from a incremental customer interaction standpoint. Yeah, so I think unit economics, I probably should have said that too. Um, but just if you're a customer, for example, in 2014, if you used Netflix, you would have realized, okay, this thing, is, I, why do I buy this thing and why don't I have cable, right? This thing is just way better. It's way cheaper. and I would pay probably two or three times what I pay right now, right? And and that's untapped pricing power. Or you can see today, maybe there's nothing to watch on Netflix, right? So being that customer, you have a unique perspective into the willingness to pay. And the willingness to pay 
uh, or, or the stickiness of a product is going to be important in determining the unit economics. Hmm. Because I know if the price can go up, let's say double, and for Netflix, using Netflix as the example, if their cost base is largely fixed, then that's going to lead to a lot of margin expansion and a lot of operating leverage, which isn't in the price today. And then do you think that also affects the customer acquisition cost on the opposite side of that calculation, where if something's so good, for instance, Roku, Netflix, even Lululemon, Mm -hmm. from a customer standpoint, you're probably going to go tell your friends, hey, like these are the best Lululemon pants I've tried on. Or from a recent example that I wrote about, Figs, the um, healthcare apparel company. Uh, mm-hmm. though their, their clothes are so good that all these nurses are telling their friends like, Hey, I'm buying these figs clothes. They're amazing. Have you seen, and, and, and is that even part of your rationale when doing this kind of qualitative work saying the customer acquisition costs for these types of businesses, if they really nail the product are going to be so much lower than an inferior product that has to ramp up marketing. Yeah, exactly. So, so one example I can give you is for example, Spotify. So you're on Instagram, probably I'm on Instagram at the end of every year, everyone's stories are those, uh, like, like, like the analytics of their Spotify. It's like, you're the number one Taylor Swift fan, or you're the number one Drake fan and everyone sees it. And it's so cool. And that's free marketing, right? And that's going to lower their customer acquisition costs. So for me, I owned uh, Liberty Sirius uh, XM, which owns Sirius XM. And I kind of owned it because it was cheap and it had, some 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 good qualitative or it had some good quantitative metrics but just seeing spotify and just asking myself the question what would i buy it kind of led me to exit my position in uh liberty Sirius xm when i got the chance hmm. yeah i mean the other the other great thing about spotify speaking of that kind of end of the year thing i think i listened mm-hmm. to gosh i must have been the number one listener of eric church in the entire world at that point I I can't even imagine like thousands of hours because not only do I listen to Spotify when I'm like writing and and, and doing some research, but just in the car. So those long trips, it's just like 10 hours straight of Chris Stapleton, Eric Church, Zach Brown. Um, Yeah. yeah, Those, those those analytics are so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just got Springsteen and creeping on repeat. It's just those two. (laughs) See, you know know exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. I know, buddy. I love it. I love it. So when you think about stuff that you've learned from a philosophical perspective over this past year, you know, not, not including the one-off things from, from COVID, but um, what, what is kind of one aspect of your investment process that, that you've learned this year that has kind of influenced you more than anything? So maybe it's something you picked up reading this year, something, uh, a trade that went well or a trade that went poorly that's influenced how you think about investing going forward. Yeah, so I think it gets back to basically being self-aware and not owning things that make your stomach churn. So I think that kind of gets back to understanding the customer so, so that's one aspect, but then kind of unrelated to that. Uh, so for me, I've tried to own Chinese mega cap tech twice uh, in the past three years. And it just really made me queasy when the news would come out of there, uh, even though I'd done the research because I wasn't on the ground there. Yep. So I finally figured out SoftBank was the best way for me to do it because I could anchor on the NAV discount. So even though the uh, price, of 
uh, SoftBank may fluctuate, I can just anchor on the net asset value because I can calculate the value of all those stocks. And then Masayoshi-san has shown a willingness to make um, accretive uh, repurchases. So we bought 13% of the company back last year at close to like 50 or uh, 40 cents on the dollar. So mm -hmm. that, that's my way of making it easier for myself just because I know my own weaknesses and I know my own tendencies and it makes me uncomfortable if I own them outright. Yeah, I mean, all, all, all you have to do is look at, I think it was DD Global or, or DD that just at, at a, out of nowhere, they were taking off a bunch of, I, gosh, I forget, what was what was the like app or website that they were taking off of immediately or something I, after IPO? Oh, I think it was like their, like, like the app store it was taken out of the Chinese app store. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Small mm -hmm. issue. <laughs> yeah. But pretty but big, yeah. pretty big. Yeah. So that brings me to another question. When you look at your investable universe, I know we're going to talk about Swedish tobacco in a little bit and, and even, even some British tobacco. Are there any countries that are off limits uh, or are there any geographies that, that you think you are as comfortable with like the United States or North America, uh, maybe, maybe some kind of ex us European developing markets out there. Uh, so predominantly I'd say 90%, I would like to try to keep 90% of my portfolio in rule of law countries that are probably ex, uh, Commonwealth. So like maybe the U S Canada, uh, maybe some of the Nordics, uh, uh, you know, um, the UK and Australia, maybe, but I don't really want to venture out too much into the emerging markets because that's when you get a lot of black swan risk, like what happened with DD. So even though I own the SoftBank position, it's going to be pretty capped. Like it'll never be a 30 or 40% position. And one of the things that I like about tobacco is that the lion's share of the revenue from these companies is coming from rule of law countries. Right. Nope. Makes perfect sense. And that's going to take mm -hmm. us right into our next discussion on sin stocks and this really interesting term. I don't know if you coined this, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you the credit. It is limbic capital investing. And first I think people understand on a rough, rough idea what, what sin stocks are. Talk to us about limbic investing and, and that thesis. When did you develop that and what's the story behind it? Okay, so with sin stocks, I kind of got the idea from poor Charlie's almanac. So he talks about the importance of having some sort of operant conditioning. So a positive reinforcing stimuli. So when you give your dog a treat for doing some sort of behavior that you like, that's operant conditioning. So I realized that a lot of these sin stocks either exhibited this, chemi uh, this like chemical sim stimuli, like, like sugar or like nicotine, or maybe it was a social stimuli, like a luxury brand, people wear it and they notice you and you feel good about yourself. Right. Um, so, so, so those are two aspects, but getting more into limbic capitalism, I would say what really attracted me to it was that first it's a great business, um, but what limbic capitalism more specifically focuses on is that businesses that capitalize on persistent habit formation. So I think we can all attest to how hard once you develop one, so think about alcohol, tobacco, maybe for some girls that I know, it's fillers. Fillers come before rent money. It could be social media, right? You're addicted to the likes, online shopping, binging Netflix, gaming. And I think all of these addictions can be categorized 
one way or another under limbic capitalism or sin. And these bad habits, I think, will be persistent well into the future because the concept of limbic capitalism, I'm pretty sure your limbic system is one of the oldest systems in your brain, has been around probably since the beginning of consciousness, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think as the world changes around us, that will never change will be human behavior and our physiology. So that's what I'm looking to exploit through limbic capitalism. That's so funny because I think I took a back way around that with my thesis about cult stocks and trying to invest mm-hmm. in companies that create cults. It's almost like yeah. there's so many there's so many parallels there, um, you know, because like you said, Lululemon, there's there's that there's that limbic uh, notoriety where you feel good, you look good in Lululemon clothes. It's a signal to other people that hey, I take care of my body. I I actually value what I put on and I'm an athlete mm-hmm. and it's, and it's all that social status signaling game. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about cults is that companies naturally lend themselves, lend themselves to cults. You've got a clear defined leader. You've probably got internal uh, lingo. So like, if you think about like cultures, like they develop around languages, right. You've got some sort of common shared like holidays, maybe, right. Like you've got, for example, like the earnings release is something big, or for Tesla, it's their deliveries days, right? And then you've kind of got in-group status as well and a feeling of belonging. Yeah. It's funny, you uh, when you said consciousness, just because I'm just, I'm just going to make a joke because you're from Toronto, I got uh, heavy Jordan Peterson vibes. And I was like, <laughs> we are about to go down the psychological clean your room, get the lobsters discussion. Yeah. I just got super pumped. <laughs> Funny story, he actually came to my university and I bought a ticket to listen to him. Yeah. But our university was so liberal and we were in this uh, this old chapel and this chapel was built in, I think, 1600 or 1700. So it's like one of the oldest chapels in Canada. Wow. And these kids, at, like, so, so like the hardcore left people, like they were like breaking the windows, like the stained glass windows in this chapel because they were trying to bang on the windows so he couldn't speak. Mm-hmm. It's pretty That's- wild. Yeah, that is that is wild, and that's and that's a shame because I've 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 learned so much from Peterson's pod. I mean, his his podcast is so good, and it's and it's one of the few that I recommend whenever I see people tweet out, "Hey, I've got an eight hour car ride. What should I listen to?" I always mm-hmm. recommend the Peterson podcast because you will be better for it. Yeah, no, agreed. What do most people get wrong about sin stocks when they when they think about them, think about investing? What are what are some common misconceptions that people have around them that you've noticed? Well, for some sin stocks, I'd say most pros just don't invest because of ESG, and then it's kind of kind of snowballs into social proof. Oh, if the pros don't do it, then why should the retail people do it? Uh, and mainly the reason why pros don't do it, even if they're not ESG, is because it's hard to justify to your investors, right? How am I going to explain to this guy who gave me $50 million that I'm going to invest in this tobacco stock when maybe he has a personal view that it's immoral? I Like, he's already rich enough. Why does he need to do this? Um, but I think with tobacco in general, I think it's particularly two things. I think people underestimate the pricing power of tobacco, and I think they overestimate the company declines. So if you actually look since 2015, excluding China and India, if you included China and India, it'd be even better, but we're excluding China and India. 
the actual nicotine category has seen accelerating customer counts and accelerating global spend. And I think what most white collar workers don't understand is that it's out of sight, out of mind for them. But hmm. if you step onto a university campus or a college campus, if you step onto a military base, if you step onto a construction site, you'll see it, right? And hmm. then I think with respect to pricing, what most people miss is that most, most people aren't customers, right? Most of these investors aren't customers. So they've never gone through a nicotine withdrawal. And let me tell you, if you wake up with a nicotine craving and you don't have a cigarette or if you don't have a chew or if you don't have a pouch or something, the first thing you're going to do is go buy a pack, a tin, a can and satisfy that craving. And in the U.S. specifically, prices are insanely low compared to the rest of the world relative to incomes. Huh. So a pack of cigs costs seven bucks. OK, in Canada, it probably costs around twenty five bucks. Okay, when I was 17, just just, just to tell you a story. Yeah. Um, so 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 one of my hockey teammates, uh, his his dad. So let's call this dad Bronco. Okay, Bronco was spending 40 bucks per day on cigarettes, 20 dollars per pack, on a contractor salary. So that's like 15 grand a year just on cigarettes. And this is the truth. So it's just insane how habit forming and how sticky this category is. And you'd think that most investors would get it because the tobacco thesis is just a better version of Munger and Buffett's Coca-Cola thesis. It's mm-hmm. the exact same, yep. except the declines are worse than Coca-Cola. And the pricing power isn't as strong. Yeah. No, I've always I've always thought that, and that's that that's been one of my knacks. Um, and by saying I always thought that, I meant I always thought the tobacco was a was a was a better bet than coca-cola to express that thesis and mm-hmm. i always used to get upset when uh munger or buffett would 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 get asked you know why he doesn't invest in tobacco companies or why he doesn't do this and do that and he would go you know basically pedal the moral grounds and say oh we don't invest in things that you know harm people or something like that yet coca-cola is responsible for i mean i don't know how many millions of cases of diabetes and 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 obesity and a lot of the stuff that they're doing obviously now they're trying to get more health conscious but just feeding people sugar water i think Mm -hmm. is the same thing morally as putting some cigarettes in your mouth now i could be very wrong i might get a lot of heat for that but i don't see the stark difference that buffett apparently sees there no and i tend to agree with you and the funny thing is, is that Buffett actually owned tobacco until 1987. So he owned, huh. he, so he owned 5%. He was the largest shareholder in Reynolds American. It's either, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Reynolds American. Um, and he has a famous quote. Um, here, I have it on my phone. It's actually my lock screen. So <laughs> you want to find is. something? <laughs> no, it is. So he said, the ideal business, something that costs a penny, sells for a dollar and is habit forming. And that's, and, and that's exactly what he said about tobacco back then. And I think the reason why he, he sold it was he was getting heat for it. Yes. 100%. Um, so, yeah, but, but, but I'm, so, so I, so I'll send this to you after, but yeah. he did own 5% of, it was either Reynolds American or RJ Reynolds. I think it was Reynolds American. Well, and Reynolds American also had the brand value that Buffett loves too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of put a wrap on, well, not really a wrap, but just to put a, to put a bow on maybe why people should get 
interested in tobacco stocks. I think you tweeted a couple weeks ago, maybe maybe a few days ago, uh, the actual returns for these sin stocks, these tobacco stocks over the past you know couple decades, and how I think it beat the fangs um, over 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 how many you know years or something. But can you maybe give us a more detailed breakdown of of the performance over a long time, just so people can understand that these are actually decent businesses that generate pretty high uh, annual returns? Yeah. So basically, if you look at the past 20 years and you go to my Twitter, I think I posted it yesterday, the day before, at mm-hmm. Sinstock Poppy, uh, you would have out. So, so if you just had an equal weight basket of Swedish Match, British American Tobacco, Altria Group, and Imperial brands, you would have outperformed the index. So the index uh, basically returned 358% or something like that, you would have outperformed the index by 2,000%. So whereas the index gave you 4.5 times your money, this would have given you 24.5 times your money or or more. Um, and then if you look at the past 100 years, uh, so let's say going off the Credit Suisse Global Returns Yearbook, uh, and the one we have is from 2015. So if you look at the data set from... 1915 to 2015, the best 100-year performer in the U.S. was Tobacco at 14.6% per annum. So $1 became over 6.3 million versus the index, which the index which did nowhere near that. Uh, and then in the U.K. It was alcohol at 1.5% per annum. Um, and then even if you look at the last uh, 30 years. So if you look at the best performing stocks since 1990, stuff like Monster Energy and Altria are in the top 10 mm-hmm. and they've had better returns than Microsoft. And then Microsoft had the whole personal computing boom, cloud computing, like everything. Uh, and it's just because these businesses were so capital light and could throw off tons of capital while they were growing or they repurchased shares or whatnot. So it's just that the TAM is much bigger for a habitual use consumable product that you have to keep buying over and over again than something like uh, Microsoft. So you said you were a consumer since 16 or 17 years old. And just so that listeners and myself included can kind of understand the power of these products, you mentioned a nicotine withdrawal and, and, and the strength of that and how some people will just First thing they do, if they can't get a chew or something like that, they'll go out and buy a pack of cigarettes. Can you describe to us what that feeling is like and how hard it is for someone to kick that? Because I think that that's very important in kind of understanding why these tobacco companies make such great products. And by mean great, I mean effective. People buy them and they continue to buy them. Yeah, I can't really just... It's it's really hard to describe, but you just can't focus on anything except making it stop, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, for example, I got a nicotine withdrawal during one of my exams, and it was the worst fucking thing ever. Like, I it happened with an hour left, and I was just like, holy fucking shit, what the fuck did I get myself into? It was just like, I couldn't even focus on my exam. Mm-hmm. And I was on Adderall, like, you know what I mean? I'm on the shit that's supposed to make you focus and I can't focus. All I can focus on is the nicotine, but it's just, it's, it's a, a brain thing. And it's also, 
a physical thing. And one thing that one of my principals in high school told me um, was because she caught us one time and she was saying, you know, you guys shouldn't be doing this because before you're 22, your brain isn't fully developed. Like you won't be able to focus on stuff if you don't have this. And it was absolutely true. I should have listened to that lady because I can't focus now unless I have some sort of nicotine product. So I, 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 I need some sort of stimulus. Like I'm on the lowest level nicotine gum and I have the lowest level version of the, the Vipe ePod, which is a product by British American Tobacco, but I need it to focus. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I won't be able to do uh, what I need to do during the day. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, that right there is just a testament of the, these stocks have recurring revenue. I think, I think yeah. you just say it. I mean, it's, 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 it's a recurring revenue base. It's mass bro. Nicotine as a service. If you would have described <laughs> volume decline. So think about it this way. Okay. You got 3% annual churn per year. You've got 6% annual ARPU increases. Right. And then you, that's like, that's all you need to know. If, if, if they used ARPU and they used churn and they said net dollar retention instead of revenue, this thing would be trading at 10 times sales. Man, that's actually such a good point. That, like, that's, that's, that's a testament to the power of framing because they really could do net retention rate if they wanted to. Yeah. And the thing is, in some countries, they have, uh, so in the US, it's not because of that, uh, because of uh, two pieces of legislation, the PTMA and the PACT Act. But say, for example, in Europe, you purchase pods from their e-commerce store, you purchase uh, pouches from their e-commerce store, and they have the same way that Amazon does recurring deliveries. Wow. And then you get discounts for that. So you're basically in there for life unless because because people are lazy they're not going to switch and they're not going to compare yeah no i mean all you know what you should do you should contract yourself out to these tobacco companies as like branded marketing consulting (laughs) have them them start doing some SaaS related stuff i guarantee you those investments would skyrocket (laughs) yeah no i'll have to send a message uh, uh, but I doubt they'd listen to me. I'm just some fucking 24 year old idiot in Canada, right? So, <laughs> a lot of these sin stocks and limbic investing styles, at the core, and you mentioned it earlier, and you discussed this, and I think it was your podcast with Chit Chat Money, was the idea that these products or these these innate desires that we have are Lindy. And I know that for those that read Taleb and, and, and listen to Taleb, they understand what that means. But for investors that maybe don't understand what Lindy is or where it comes from, what, what, what does Lindy mean and, and, and how does that play a role in these products and in the way that investors um, think about these companies? Yeah, so first off, what I think, so, so what Lindy essentially means is that the future life expectancy of any non-perishable is directly proportional to month of its current life. So, for example, if you think about the Bible, the Bible has been around for 2,000 plus years. And then because of that, we can assume that it will exist or it will be relevant for another 2,000 more because the ideas today are as relevant as they were 2,000 years ago. So the reason why this is important to investors is because, well, as Buffett and Bezos both say, you can only build businesses on things that are stable in time. So Bezos, for example, talks about 
lower prices, more selection, better service, faster delivery, that's all Lindy. And then if we look back to the last example we gave, the best performing stocks over the past 100 years, in order for something to be the best performer over 100 years, it has to survive for 100 years. So that's basically what we're doing here. So addiction, for me, I view that as being Lindy. So limbic capitalism, that's Lindy. Because people have been smoking tobacco in some form or another for 5,000 years. Right. So, so, so it might not be smoking tobacco, but it might be the addiction to nicotine. So that'll persist for another 5,000 years. People have been drinking alcohol for 5,000 years. They probably will for another 5,000 years. Although there are different industry characteristics in alcohol that make it inherently less attractive than tobacco. What do you mean by that? So for example, in alcohol, have an upstart come in overnight and completely flip the category upside down. So if you think about White Claw, White Claw came in overnight and just took over. Uh, if you think about the trends, the trends are away from big brands and towards more uh, craft beer companies. And the reason why is because of targeted advertising and the ability for just regular people to start up their own companies. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Nelk Boys, but they just launched not. their own salsa brand. Yeah, so, so they're big YouTubers. Uh, the, the founding three are from Canada. Uh, one of the founding guys, uh, Lucas Gasparini, his dad was actually one of my hockey coaches when I was in uh, grade 10, I think. Uh, it's Mr. Gasparini, he was a, he was a gym teacher. Uh, but they started their own uh, liquor brand and they're stealing share from some of the bigger players. So I think that, that it doesn't, happen tobacco because the industry is so concentrated and it's so heavily regulated that right. just to put a product just so for example turning point brands which is a smaller company just for them to get their whole product portfolio through uh the fda approval process was 18 million dollars right yeah. so that and then you can't advertise tobacco right there's been an advertising ban since like the 60s 70s so it's very hard for someone to basically launch a product on Instagram, target a customer, and then advertise because it's illegal. So going direct, so this is again going to be a stupid question, but you can't do like direct to consumer e-commerce for or direct to consumer something like that with within tobacco. That's also banned. Not in the U.S. In oh. other countries, yes, but basically in the U.S., if you're going to sell, ninety-seven percent of 90% of cigarette sales and 97% of other tobacco products are sold through the convenience store channel. So basically you've got to be big enough that you can manage all those relationships with the distribution channel, which is uh, C stores. This sounds like the perfect Buffett, Buffett investment. The more we talk about it, like I just, I just, I just can't stop getting around to that fact. <laughs> Literally. So, so I was talking to two of my buddies who aren't investors in the space and I was talking to them um, about this in October because the companies got really cheap back then. And they were like, why the hell hasn't Buffett bought this? And it's mainly because of legacy, right? You don't want to be, or at least Buffett doesn't want to be the guy like Munger is right now where everyone loved him. And his China comments are all everyone talks about right now. Yeah, no, his China comments took... 
it, it, it was one of those things where I listened to it and I was like, wow, he said that. And I had to listen to it again because it was just so it was so nonchalant. But uh, I don't I don't have enough uh, tools in my brain to take an argument on that stance pro or con. I mean, it sounds not good. I'll put it that way when he came out and said that about China. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, I don't know, that would be, like how many times has he criticized the U.S. government? Right. So he could be Jack Ma. They could disappear him. So I, I, I found it really hypocritical, to be honest. Yep. No, that's a good point. So let's move now to we've we, we've been kind of flirting with with tobacco and, and talking all about it. Let's let's dive into the specific companies now, especially the ones that are in your book. First off, which ones do you own and in what percentages? And then maybe we can kind of hit the main, you know, the biggest, the biggest positions in your book, why, you know, why you own them bull case and bear case. So how many, how many of them do you own at this point? Oh, okay. I own British American tobacco. I think it's around 29 to 30% of my portfolio. I own turning point brands, which is around 20% of my portfolio. I own Altria group, which is 14% of my portfolio. And then I own Swedish Match, which is 3% of my portfolio, one that I want to make a lot bigger. And then after I finish, I, I'm, I'm writing a post on Swedish Match. So after I do that, I want to start on Philip Morris, which is another one. And I kind of want to get that into the portfolio too. That way, just I own the ones that I think are the winners because I think a lot of the small, like, so, so Japan tobacco, I think that's going to be gone. I think... Like, like as in gone as it won't be an independent company uh, in the okay. future, or it'll get a lot smaller. Um, and then I think Imperial brands will be a lot smaller. So yeah, I, I, I kind of want to own the stuff that I think will be around. So then talk to us about, what was it? British, uh, British tobacco was your largest position at tw- almost 30%. Yeah. So um, first off, how do you decide to make something that large? And then second, walk us through, you know, why, why you decided to do that. Yeah. So to make something that large, it's usually a combination of things. So as I said previously, it's got to have good quantitative characteristics, good qualitative characteristics. So I think it's got to be, so it's got to have great returns on capital. It's got to be capital light first. It's got to throw off a ton of cash and be cheap enough such that there's a low downside that's mitigated by buybacks or capital return. Uh, and then getting more into the qualitative, it's got to be acyclical. So unaffected by the general economy, it's got to be something that's got like a very wide moat. Uh, and then the other aspect that I really need to be able to size something at 30% specifically or make the biggest position in my portfolio is that I need someone with serious skin in the game that can have an influence. So previously I had Facebook at 50% of my portfolio and that was Mark Zuckerberg. But with uh, British American Tobacco, that person is uh, Kenneth Dart. So he's worth about 7 billion. He was formerly the richest man from Michigan, but then he moved to the Caymans, better taxes. Um, And He's, he's plowed $6 billion into the company. So if you look wow. at the public equities that he owns, this is like 90% of his public equity portfolio that's been reported. So he owns $6 billion. And he's got a really good history of getting paid. So 
him and Singer, Paul Singer, uh, excuse me, uh, once bought these Argentinian bonds uh, and they bought them for like probably like 10 or 20 cents on the dollar. And they basically put Argentina through austerity. Like they seized ships, they closed hospitals, like they did everything they could and they got paid. So I really like the idea of investing alongside a badass like that with some serious skin in the game, because you know this guy isn't gonna lose money. You don't get to be worth $7 billion by doing stupid things. And you definitely don't put all of your money, basically 90% of your money into one company. Maybe he's leveraged too, right? You don't do that unless you know you can have some sort of effect and you're not gonna lose your money. That's a great point. Yeah, it's actually really cool. I've never heard of what what was it? Ken Ken Dart, you said? Yeah, Kenneth Dart. So and how it's so, a great so, name. How did he how did he start uh his, his his fortune? How did he how did he build that? So they had a family business that was, I think, container shipping. And then that kind of did its thing. And then I don't know whether they uh, they probably sold that or I don't know if they sold that, or maybe he has a brother, the brother's doing that. But he started a vulture fund after that. So then he made some money in the vulture fund and then he owns 25% of all the real estate in the Cayman Islands. So this is actually what I think he's doing is I think he probably did a cash out refi on his properties. He did a cash out <laughs> refi and then he's using the money to buy all these tobacco stocks. That's amazing. That is so yeah. good. I should get him on the podcast. Gosh, that'd be awesome. Can, yeah, no, for sure. He's, he's fucking old though. So I don't even know if he knows what a podcast is or the internets in general. <laughs> so walk us through so you've got british tobacco the 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 other one and i'm gonna skip uh i'm gonna skip altria and and philip morris for now because i think most people understand those two at least in the u.s walk us yeah. through your swedish match that is a hard company name to say by the way swedish match no, it is. walk us walks through that bull thesis there and why are you excited about it okay so it's a capital light compounder that sells addictive habitual use product. It's got, phenom it's, it's, it's got phenomenal brand loyalty. It's got tons of pricing power and it's got a really, really long runway for growth. So in a nutshell, as I said previously, this is just a way better adaptation of Buffett and Munger's Coca-Cola thesis because here the alternatives to the nicotine pouch is dick or cigarettes. So the alternatives kill you right? Or they create glaring user experience problems like making your clothes smell, your breath smell, needing a spitter. So it's a win-win for the consumers, but it's also a win-win for the companies because you get to live longer and have a better user experience and have a better life free from long-tail medical risk. But the company also gets to milk you for 10 years longer on average because wow. the average lifespan of a person who doesn't use tobacco is 10 years longer on average. So you get a higher customer lifetime value, right? You've got yep. 10 more years of 6% per year price increases. And then those cash flows all drop to you. So I think the end game of this industry is pretty obvious. Consumers want to live longer. Companies want to make more money. And interestingly, globally, for the first time in a really long time, as I said previously, nicotine customers and the, the, the retail value of the nicotine category is increasing at an accelerating rate. And that's because of reduced risk products like nicotine pouches. 
So 50% of the entrants into the pouch category are first time nicotine users. In Sweden, 50% of all nicotine pouch users are women. And a recent test run done by Turning Point Brands showed that 20% of these pouch buyers were women. And this was for an extra strength pouch, which is probably not typically a pouch that women would be buying. Okay. Then the, the, the product Zin in the US has a really good brand, brand flywheel driven by social proof. Um, and I think that should be persistent, barring any game changes in the speed of nicotine delivery by the competition. So Zin is what it's called, and it's got a 70% category share uh, in, in, in terms of retail dollars. And then that 70% category retail share is despite 70% higher average selling prices than the competition. Wow. So the customer has a clearly demonstrated willingness to pay. If we look at the convenience store operators who sell these products, okay? So, so as I said before, convenience stores sell 97% of other tobacco products. They also make more gross profit dollars per unit of pouch sold almost three times uh, compared to uh, cigarettes. So, so, so they're making 150 per pouch of Zin compared to 50 cents per pack of cigarettes. And the gross margins are actually higher. So there's a unit economic incentive on the part of the convenience store operator because you've got better asset turns, you've got better gross profit over tangible assets, and you've got probably better operating leverage because your rent is fixed. So that gross profit just drops down to EBIT. Uh, and I think the most interesting and most valuable thing about this company is that it's got insane incremental margins. So for the past five years, they've averaged 60% incremental EBIT margins, okay? In 2020, that accelerated to 69%. And then in Q1 2020, across all their products, that increased to 85%. So 85 cents out of every dollar in Q1 2021 dropped to their bottom line, or sorry, to, to, to their uh, operating profit. So it's just insane. Wow. That's, uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> it's, it's definitely worth putting on the watch list for sure. So um, how could you be wrong though, when looking at these ideas, right? Let's take Swedish, Swedish match, dude. I don't, like what's, what's the ticker for that? Because I can't, I can't say that freaking uh, name. Let's see. Swedish SWMA. It's, it's, All right, cool. SWMA. Yeah, yeah. Where, where can you go wrong there? What are, what are some of the uh, bear cases? Yeah, so I said that in the US, it has 70% retail dollar share. In Scandinavia, they actually only have 15 to 16% share. And that's slightly decreased over time, even though their growth has been like 50% there. British American Tobacco has, is, is basically the 70% behemoth over there. Uh, and the reason why is I'm assuming that British American tobacco is employing the same strategy that it's employing in the U S in Scandinavia. And they just have more scale to just push it through because Swedish match was basically constrained. So they just focused on the U S. So the bear thesis is that Swedish match lacks scale. It lacks distribution 
scale and regulatory scale relative to Altria or Philip Morris or British American Tobacco. And right now, the whole thesis is underpinned by an emergent US brand. And if the brand value starts to erode in the US, or if customers start to care more about price than they do about brand or social proof or a cognitive referent um, in the US, then their dollar share will erode and their margins probably will come down and their return on capital could be competed away. But everything that I've seen in terms of the way that these new categories have developed leads me to believe that once, once you've been established as the clear leader, your category shares persistent. So if you think about Juul, Juul has been actively trying to slow their business because of the FDA investigation. But at the end of 2020, they still had 63% share of the retail category for uh, vapes or e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Icos in the U.S. or, or sorry, Icos globally, it's, it's not in the U.S., but globally, it's having to deal with British American tobacco basically running very subsidized competitors to its heated tobacco product. But Icos still has 78% share. So just assuming that Zen, which has 70%, retail share uh, basically follows those other two markets, I think that you can, you should be able to see persistent economic profitability persist throughout time. Got it. I'm going to wrap up this conversation with your probably favorite topic, ESG investing and why it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'm just kidding, but I do want to discuss ESG investing because my, my biggest question mark is, is this whole idea of ESG investing valid or legitimate if we look out five to 10 years? Or is this more of a consequence of shorter term signaling, just to kind of put it respectfully, I guess? What are what are your thoughts on ESG investing um, over over the long term? So we're talking performance over five, 10, 15 years. Like, do you think that there's a there's a legitimate strategy here that can deliver alpha? And if not, why? Well, ESG, as it's defined today, is just a bunch of bullshit to get some consultants paid, right? Or it's a way to just basically, like exactly what you said, it's a, basically it's about signaling. But I don't know. I think that to really deliver alpha, what's more important, like I think the governance aspects are very important, but I think the best way to manage governance is just to have someone with meaningful skin in the game. So that way there's symmetry between the outcomes that you will face as a shareholder and what they face as an owner. Um, But I don't really think that ESG is gonna create any long-term alpha because if you have everyone competing in this ESG arena, okay, the returns are gonna get competed away because all the multiples are going up. And if you really think about, so Seth Klarman, said that you wanna try and buy from irrational sellers. Well, the people who are selling stocks for ESG reason, uh, people who are selling stocks for ESG reason, so the non-ESG universe, okay? It's irrationally cheap because there are no incremental buyers from this universe of, of irrational people that are in the institutional community 
these institutional investors are selling it irrationally, not based on fundamental valuation reasons, but because they have to appear ESG to their clients. Um, so there's a great opportunity there to buy from basically uninformed sellers. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of the rare opportunities where an entire sort of group of companies are inefficiently priced. I can't add anything to that. I think that was a great way of, way of articulating that. Is there anything or is there any way that ESG investing could work if you were to try to flip this and put on your pro ESG hat? Is, is, is there any way that this thing could work over the next five to 10 years? Well, if you're invested in tobacco, then as they transition to reduce risk products, you could make the argument that these things are no longer tobacco companies that kill you, but rather pharmaceutical companies that participate in the cessation of harmful behavior like smoking or, uh, or, or, or chewing tobacco and are cancer preventing uh, or, or organizations or organisms. So I think that that's one way that you can do it is you can buy something today that's non-ESG and then maybe 20 years from now, it becomes ESG. Right. Isn't that what kind of, uh, I think the drug company was Purdue that made oxy oxys and then mm-hmm. they made the drug to get rid of the addiction to the oxys. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's not a for, bad business if you can create the addiction and then create the product that solves the addiction. Yeah, for for me... Like I can understand why some people morally would not want to invest in tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, it's like, you know, fuck these guys. If they're going to make money off me, I'm going to hedge my own cost structure. You know what I mean? I'm getting rich. So that's, mm. that's, that's basically what my mentality is, is it's like, these fuckers got me at 16. It's like, watch this. I'm going to get rich off this kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's close with a Twitter Q and A. I sent out a tweet uh, a couple hours ago, and we got we got some got some questions here. Some of them we've answered, some of them we haven't. So I'm just going to go down the list here. First comes from Special Situation. So at Rose Rosemont Seneca, um, he's he's actually a pretty good follow. Um, <clears throat> he's he he he's really good. Doesn't follow me though. Wonder what that's about. Anyways, Never he asks these guys. <laughs> he asks, "Is TPB a future 10x bagger compounder? Yes or no?" Yeah, if everything goes right, it could be. So, if you just think about, so they own zigzags. I know that other people like raw, but I think the category is big enough that this is not a winner-take-all category. It's probably going to manifest into a duopoly where maybe let's say raw is the Coca-Cola and maybe zigzag becomes the Pepsi. You're still going to do really well because cannabis is going to be legalized. If you look at the, the most recent polls, 68% of Americans believe that cannabis should be legalized. And in Canada, it, it already is legalized. So I think that our generation has a very different view on recreational drugs and maybe our parents or our grandparents. So I think that that business is a great way to play the growth in cannabis while basically having a Modi business that basically in the last year it raised prices 5%. So you have a, a volume growth that's driven by cannabis. So maybe let's say 20% a year. And then on top of that, you got 5% pricing. 
uh, and then it's going to form a natural duopoly around bra uh, and around uh, or, or around zigzag. And then the other sort of business, for example, the Stoker's product business, Stoker's is one of the only chewing tobacco and MST businesses that's growing. And the reason why is because they're basically like, uh, have you ever bought those cheese balls at Costco that come in the really big tub? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm an American, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what Stoker's is, is Stoker's has that same value proposition. They sell tubs of chewing tobacco rather than the cans. Wow. And they've kind of positioned themselves around the value um, sort of perspective. So you've got a counter positioning there because a lot of the big boys don't want to come at them because they're going to inherently lower their margins. Right. So, yep. so, so Stokers has 20% margins, whereas someone like Altria, if you look at Copenhagen and school that has 70% margins, but even though, uh, Stokers has 20% margins today. It's got pricing power and that margin should expand over time. So they also raised prices 5% this year. Got uh, it. What's more, what's more interesting is that they've got a nicotine pouch business and they're kind of going after this niche, which is extra strength that no one really else is going after. And just from my personal experience, when I tried snus, I used to be a customer of Swedish match. I used to import this stuff from Sweden called Siberia, which was like 29 milligrams of nicotine. It was absolutely fucked. Like you couldn't get out of your chair, fucked. Um, but that's what they're kind of going after. There's this extra strength category. And I think that can be a really good organic grower. Uh, and then in their new gen products for vaping enclosed, or sorry, they're, they're an open tank. It's again, very similar to Stoker's. Open Tank is a situation where the big boys don't want to come in and they can kind of be like Constellation software where they can basically consolidate this whole Open Tank uh, market in the US, okay? And then they can basically exert pricing power because the customer of an Open Tank vape generally skews older and it generally skews more enthusiast. So they care about the flavors. And then what they're going to do is they're going to transition the business from being two thirds, third party, one third, first party. And they're going to flip that over time. So that should allow them to have a margin expansion from a product or a yeah, product mix shift. But then also they should have pricing power once they consolidate uh, that market. And the thing that's really dope about this business is that capital expenditures are less than 1% of sales. So they don't need any CapEx to grow, any CapEx to grow. So all of that cash that it throws off can be redeployed into acquisitions or into buybacks. And the CEO of this company is a XI from Philip Morris Altria, really smart guy. And then the CFO uh, is X.72. So he was one of Stevie Cohen's boys. So they got some, <laughs> yeah, so they got some real brain boxes there. That's you know a pretty, I mean? that, that's yeah, a that's, really that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty sweet mix that they got. Yeah, so the way that I describe it is, I think this could be, it's obviously not a collection of mini monopolies like Transdime, but it could be like a Transdime for this industry because they've got a balance sheet they can lever. It's really capital light. They've got volume growth, they've got pricing growth, right? And they can lever up and they can throw that into acquisitions. And then with those acquisitions, they can just pump out regional brands to their distribution channels. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at tickers estimates for uh, turning turning point brands, and they're estimating bid over a hundred million in EBIT by 2022. So you can buy this at roughly ten times 2022's EBIT, which doesn't sound bad at all. No, not bad at all. Sweet. All right. Next question comes from at thoughtful underscore 100 unlevered versus levered multiples when analyzing tobacco companies. Oh, okay. This, this is, so I would say both maybe nice cop out. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I typically don't really care about leverage unless the business is shrinking. I would actually prefer a company be more levered because again, like Transdime is levered seven times. These companies could be levered seven times and just return all that cash to shareholders. And it's an acyclical business, right? They're super capital light. Like they just buy back a fuck ton of stock. So for me, if it's more levered or if a, if, if a, a management team has shown themselves to be more adept at using a more optimal capital structure, then I appreciate that. But I think I look at, as I said previously, my quantitative valuation things that I look at, I look at EV, beta, I look at levered free cash flow to market cap, and then I look at uh, the ultimate free cash flow to enterprise value. Got it. But yeah. All right. Next question comes from at SpongeBob Ross. Beautiful name. Favorite jewel flavor? Mango. Easy. Oh, that okay. shit tastes like candy. But they <laughs> they 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 banned it though. Why? Because the kids are using it, man. Because the kids thought it tasted like candy too. Damn kids. Fucking All kids. Right. <laughs> now, is that your favorite fruit too, in general, or just flavor? No, just flavor. I'd say my favorite fruit. Let's see. I eat like the fruit I eat the most of is probably bananas or strawberries. Okay. But I don't know. Yeah, no, I respect that. All right. Next yeah. question comes from Philip Martinelli at Wealth or Die. He said, I think we've already answered this. Ask him why SWMA is better than BTI. And I think we've discussed that. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Okay. Next question here. <laughs> You'll like this one. At Kale, Kale S Chips, what is Ken Dart doing? Okay. Just one thing to get back to what Philip said, because I remember there was something I didn't say earlier. Yeah, that's fine. So, so global tobacco sales are around 820 to $840 billion a year. It's almost a trillion dollars globally that's spent on tobacco. Swedish match is less than 0.2% of those sales. Okay, so British American Tobacco is a lot bigger percentage of that sales. So if you think about, okay, what could be better about Swedish Match and British American Tobacco? I said you could lose less money with British American Tobacco. You can make a fuck ton more with Swedish Match if it works, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It's just they've they they've got more addressable market that they can take share from. Exactly. So it's kind of asymmetrically skewed versus British American tobacco. And then your next question was on 
Ken Dart. What's that? My Kale's chips ask, "What's Ken Dart doing?" And I think you already answered that by saying he's refinancing his homes in the Caymans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's doing a cash out refinance. He's probably buying tobacco, but I think he's either going to impose some stricter capital allocation frameworks, so they're not going to be doing as much stupid shit because the management team at British American Tobacco is. Basically, I don't want to say the R word, but like they're pretty close to being the R word. Um, they're just absolute like monkeys. They're idiots. Um, but I think one other thing that he could be doing is he owns also a sizable position in Imperial Brands, and he could be looking to merge them and then just cut the cost, hmm. right? The duplicate costs. Um, but to be honest, he hasn't really made his intentions particularly clear. And it's yeah. been very underreported by the media. You know what I mean? This guy well, takes. It sounds. I mean, when well, well, when you said combining imperial brands, I mean that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. It's cheap as fuck. Yeah. Too. It trades like five times cash flow. Yeah. So we've got last question from at flying back best. He or she asks, should tobacco companies abolish their dividends and just plow it all into share buybacks considering their low multiples? Yes. One step further, I would say that they should abolish their dividends and engage in levered buybacks of shares, kind of like what John Malone does at Charter or what Domino's Pizza does. But that is never going to happen because... The guys in charge want to keep their jobs and the current shareholder base owns these things for the dividends. So if you want to own a company that's doing that, you should buy Swedish Match. Swedish Match has basically 67%. Okay, so, so, so if you look at the cumulative capital returns over the past, let's say since January 2015, and you take their cumulative normalized earnings. Cumulative capital returns are 1.13 times their cumulative normalized earnings. The reason why is because they've undertaken leverage, maintaining a standard two times net debt to EBITDA, no D, EBITDA, and they've maintained that ratio and then they've been able to grow the business. And 67% out of that uh, 113 so the majority of it has been coming from buybacks and then 46 out of that 113 has been dividends. Got it. Yeah. So that does it for our Twitter questions. So right now we just have the last couple of questions that I ask everybody. So first off, where can people go to find out more about you? I think you're just on Twitter, but if you've got any other social places you like to lurk, let them know. Yeah. So I'm at Sinstock. Poppy, Poppy is P-A-P-I. Just think of Drake, he's Champagne Poppy. I'm Sinstock Poppy. So that's my Twitter. And then my Substack is in the link of my Twitter bio, sinstockpoppy.substack.com. And yeah. So what is gonna be your first article on that newsletter? Uh, so my goal of it is just to basically share my stuff that interests me. So it'll be Swedish match. I'm almost done the post, but I'm the kind of guy when I start to write stuff, I review it and I'm like, okay, hey, fuck, this is brutal. Like, let me fix this. But 
Like, I don't know if you're like that. It takes me a long time. Um, yeah. But yeah. yeah, it takes me, it takes me forever to, 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 to finish. Well, I'll put it this way. It's hard for me to start the writing process, but once I'm in it, I can hit that flow state and then, and then the words kind of seem to fly. But then when I go to editing, I'm like, Oh, half of this is crap. And then I got to remove half of it. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm the same way. I've just never been able to get into flow state. So I like Canada, we're still on lockdown. So I'm living with my aunt and uncle right now. And mm-hmm. uh, my grandma's here too. And my grandma, God bless her soul. She's just always checking in on me, but that kind of interrupts the flow state. You know what, you know, what you should try. And the only reason I say this is because it's helped me on Spotify. If you just look up binaural beats, it'll mm-hmm. give you like these alpha wave music pattern things that at least for me, help me get right into a, right into a pretty interesting flow. state. I'll just put them in my, put them in my earphones and, and, uh, and, and, and go at it. So that, that might be something you want to check out. Gotcha. Thanks. I'll check that out for sure. All right. So then last question and it can't be Wayne Gretzky. I'm going to say it right now. If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Uh, so uh, it would be my mom. So she took her life this past year in April. Wow. Um, and she was someone who was just so important to me. She was, she was really successful academically. She had her master's in electrical engineering. She was a successful career person. She was pretty high up at Honeywell when I was a kid in Canada. Um, and she gave that all up to basically focus on me and my brother. Um, and she drove us everywhere. When I mean everywhere, she probably put like 500,000 miles or maybe 350,000 miles on her car in a span of five years, just driving us everywhere for hockey. She would wake up at 4.45 to take me to practice. And I played on three teams in high school. So I practice at six with like the JV team. I'd practice after school with the varsity team. And then I'd practice with my real team half an hour away. And then even while she did that, she, she really installed a great value system in me. You know, basically the importance of hard work, the importance of education. Uh, she really hated the tobacco habit. She was the reason why I quit smoking and stopped uh, chewing and stopped drinking in general. Um, but she was just like a great influence on my life. And if I could have dinner with her, I never got to say goodbye. I never got to say, I love you. And I never got to say, I'm sorry for not being for, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for not being there for you, even though she was there for me. Cause I had two knee surgeries when I was in high school, I was basically in a wheelchair because of hockey. She did everything for me, everything. Wow. So she basically put her life on hold for me. So I wish I could have been a better son and I wish I could have told her that. I'm so sorry to hear that. That is. Sorry I, if that's fucked for this podcast, but no, I mean, that's, look, that's, I mean, it's, that's it's, the honest it's, answer. It's, it's raw and it's honest and that's, and that's what this is all about. I mean, it, it is, but there's, there's no putting past just how, how weighty and, how intense that that is and 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 i have no words but just you know to 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 say how sorry i am for 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 you and your family and 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 for having that happen um i can't i can't even imagine yeah no it's 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 definitely been tough and it's 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 hard man because once one thing like that happens there's potential for it to cascade 
through other things. So I'd say just one thing is, you know, we have to end the stigma around, you know, depression and mental health. And I think we need to normalize speaking about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I think in our age group, it's more normalized, but even just getting older folks more comfortable with it. Cause like, yeah. I don't know, we, we all loved my mom, but I just think that, you know, I think the pandemic and I think all these sorts of things, she just saw her world become smaller and smaller and smaller hmm. until it was only her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Man, that is, it's sad how, 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 um, how many other people experienced similar things during COVID and the consequences mm-hmm. that happened because of that. And it sucks. Um, and there's, there's, there, there, there's just no way around, you know, how, how, how much, how, how awful that is. But I really do appreciate you sharing that because if one person can normalize the discussion around mental health and depression within their own family, because of that, then, you know, that's, that's, that's worth the world to that person. Yeah. Like, I don't want to say this enough, but like, this is not about sympathy. This is just like, I don't want any person to ever go through what my family had to go through. And the one thing I would also say is if you are a child in a house and you see an abusive relationship and it's your parents, call the fucking police, call the police and don't let that shit escalate. Cause as a kid, you're going to be afraid. Or if, if you see it and you're a friend of a person who sees it, right. Let's see that, that you see something else like, or, 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 or an abusive relationship in someone else's life. Mm-hmm. you're going to make such a big difference on those kids' lives. Yep. And that's just like one thing that I constantly replay in my mind. Why didn't I say something? Hmm. Why didn't something? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you, you nailed it there. You nailed it there. Don't, don't be afraid to speak of, don't be afraid to take action. Um, yeah. I mean, that is, that's a heavy, heavy, heavy topic. I'm glad you brought it up. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. You were you were highly recommended from both Greenwald and a few other people on Twitter. So I think a lot of people are going to get a ton of value out of this, all up and down this conversation spectrum, right from the beginning to the end. Well, thank you, man. Thank you for having me on. And, you know, I just want to say, like, I'm a big fan of what you do. And I've learned a lot from you because I'm not a big chart guy or a big technical guy. So, you know hopefully people can find value in our discussions on investing and then also on life as well. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for everything. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I look, I appreciate that. I'm just trying to give people the platform to spew the knowledge that they have. And so, you know, if I, if I, if I can do that for, for, for a few people, um, you know, each week, then my job, my job is complete. So sin stock poppy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Whenever I'm in Canada next, I got to meet you and we got to go out and, 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 and have some good food and watch some hockey. Oh, we're going to have tons of beers too. <laughs> Love it. Sorry, right. mom. Sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Ciao. Thank you.